Nikki Haley's made her first campaign pitch of the 2024 presidential race. The former South Carolina governor says Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of their last eight presidential elections. And if the party is tired of losing, it should put its trust in a new generation of Republicans. It's Wednesday, February 15th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the special management unit of the Thompson Penitentiary in Illinois is shutting down because of deadly conditions there uncovered by reporting from NPR and the Marshall Project. Massachusetts residents who rely on well water may be vulnerable to so-called forever chemicals known as PFAS. You've lived here for 37 years and you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. Also ahead is fast fashion slowing down. It's 401 News Headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Harrowing week for victims of gun violence. Today in court, families of the 13 people killed or injured in the Buffalo supermarket mass shooting last year confronted the white supremacists who pulled the trigger. Barbara Massey's sister Catherine was among those killed. We're human. We like our kids to go to good schools. We love our kids. We never go in those neighborhoods and take people out. Suddenly, a man behind lunged for the gunman, Peyton Gendron, who was quickly escorted out of the courtroom. The 19-year-old was ordered to spend the rest of his life behind bars on state charges. He still faces federal charges and the possibility of a death sentence. In Michigan, lawmakers are looking at stronger anti-gun violence legislation in the wake of this week's shooting at Michigan State University. Eight students were shot, three fatally. A vigil's being held tonight. Hollywood legend Raquel Welch has died. Her manager confirmed Welch died today following a brief illness. She was 82 years old. The Golden Globe winning actress appeared in TV shows such as The Virginian and Bewitched. She catapulted to sex symbol status with roles in Fantastic Voyage and One Million Years B.C. Former South Carolina governor and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is now the first major Republican to challenge former President Donald Trump for the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. She officially launched her campaign today in Charleston. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. In launching her campaign, Nikki Haley has stressed her profile as the daughter of Indian immigrants, a woman, and a relatively young politician. In a speech that mentioned Trump only in passing, Haley said it's time to move beyond what she called divisions and distractions and look to the future. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. Haley spoke to a crowd of supporters in Charleston, another possible 2024 contender from South Carolina. Republican Senator Tim Scott is planning an event here on Thursday evening. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Charleston. The U.S. says it has growing concerns about China's relations with Russia. It has been a year since Russia and China declared what they called a no-limits partnership just before Russia invaded Ukraine. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman says China is trying to increase its standing in the international community by talking about ways to end the war in Ukraine. But she tells the Brookings Institution, a Washington think tank, that China maintains its partnership with Moscow. I don't think that the PRC can have it both ways, though they're trying. Uh, and yes, uh, we are concerned about this growing relationship, just as we are concerned about Iran's uh, growing relationship with Russia. And Sherman says she believes that those who are helping Russia are going to end up with, as she puts it, an albatross around their necks. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. U.S. stocks end the day slightly higher. The Dow is up 38 points. You're listening to... 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says she will soon introduce a tax relief package. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, the governor said Massachusetts is a great state, but it's expensive to live and to do business here. What are the things we can offer for families when you talk about child tax credits and the like? The goal here is to make Massachusetts more affordable. It's necessary for our families. And also, it's really important for our competitiveness. Healy did not get into specifics, but she said a tax package will be filed along with her budget proposal March 1st. UMass Amherst is moving closer to finding its next chancellor. University officials will be asked tomorrow to choose Javier Reyes for the post after UMass President Marty Meehan recommended him today. Reyes currently serves as the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois Chicago. If he takes the UMass Amherst job, he will be the first Hispanic person to lead the university. More than a half million people in Massachusetts get their drinking water from private well There are no state or federal laws that require well owners to test for toxic chemicals known as PFAS that can seep into the wells, and many homeowners don't test because of the cost. As WBR's Barbara Moran reports, some proposed legislation is trying to change that. Testing a private well for PFAS can cost hundreds of dollars, and installing a home filter can cost thousands. The legislation aims to create a trust fund that would help private well owners with costs. Representative Kate Hogan is one of the bill's authors. We need to set up this remediation trust fund to provide grants for addressing PFAS in drinking water and groundwater um, and to expand eligible recipients. And that, in particular, is private well owners. The bill also requires that the state set health guidelines for PFAS in private wells. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Boston's Sci-Fi Film Festival kicks off tonight at the Somerville Theater. It'll feature movies, workshops, and themed cosplay parties. 30 feature-length films, 75 short films will be shown in person and virtually this year. The festival will run through February 20th and will wrap up with a binge-watching marathon of sci-fi classics and new films. 56 degrees now, a beautiful day to be outdoors today. Looks like we should have a mild night tonight, too. Temperatures just below 50, some real strong wind gusts tonight. Tomorrow, beginning with sunshine, but then clouds move in through the day. Another unseasonably warm day could reach 62. Again in Boston now, 56 degrees at 407. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today, federal officials are taking steps to close one of the most dangerous prison units in the country. The special management unit of the Thompson Penitentiary in northwestern Illinois will shut down and hundreds of inmates will move somewhere else within the federal prison system. This change came about because of murders and suicides among inmates at Thompson, violence that was exposed by the reporting of NPR and its partner, The Marshall Project. We'll warn you that this report includes some descriptions of that violence. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro is here to talk with us about this development. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ari. The federal officials who are shutting down this prison unit say they are doing so largely because of violent conditions, which you documented in your reporting. Tell us what you found. That's right. This is reporting I did with Christy Thompson of the Marshall Project. And first, we found a string of violent deaths in just two years, five homicides, prisoners killing other prisoners, and two suicides. And there was another violent death. Uh, We're not 
sure what happened just two weeks ago. The question is why? What set this prison apart? Why was it so much more violent? What did your reporting show? Right. Well, it started with a little-known practice, something called double-selling, which is the practice of putting two men into one tiny solitary confinement cell. It's about the size of a parking space, and they're locked down for 23, 24 hours a day. And we reported on men also placed in restraints, often painful four-point restraints for hours or days, often in violation of federal prison policies. This happened in a room that the prisoners told us they called the torture chamber, and these tight restraints would leave scars that the men told us they called their Thompson tattoos. A lot of your reporting relied on prisoners or their family members who courageously spoke up about these conditions, sometimes even though they feared that the the prison system might retaliate against them. Can you introduce us to someone? Yes. Uh, One prisoner, Demetrius Hill, he was an eyewitness to a killing, and he got a message to us the day after it happened. A family told their stories of how corrections officers would often put men together as cellmates or in recreation yards, men who they knew were going to fight. Sue Phillips says guards put her son, Matthew, alone in a recreation cage with two members of a white supremacist gang who then killed him. Uh, Matthew was Jewish. He had a large Star of David tattooed on his chest. And the indictment of these men who were charged with killing him says they had their own tattoos for a prison gang called the Valhalla-bound skinheads. Here's Sue Phillips. She's talking about what the indictment says was found in their cells. They had white supremacy markings on their shoes. They also had cells that contained Nazi memorabilia, mugs with SWAT stickers on them, articles and literature promoting white supremacy, drawings of Hitler. These men brutally kicked and stomped her son. And Sue Phillips says corrections officers should have known what would happen when they put her son alone in that recreation cage with him. I understand the Bureau of Prisons won't say where these 500 or so inmates from Thompson will go, but based on your reporting, it does not seem safe to assume that this is necessarily going to solve the problem. Right. Christy Thompson and I have been writing for seven years now about problems at these special management units. They're supposed to be places that take the most violent, uh, dangerous federal prisoners, gang leaders, ones who commit prison violence. Although, by the way, we talked to men who didn't seem to fit any of those descriptions. Our first reporting found similar violence at the previous version of the special management unit at the federal prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And shortly after our reporting, that unit was moved to Thompson. And Thompson became another violence factory, which is why the Federal Bureau of Prisons now is shutting it down after its own investigation, which found the problems at Thompson are so deep and persistent that they figured the place can't be fixed. It's not clear, though, what will replace it or, as you said, where these men are going. But we're going to keep watching. That's NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have left their country in opposition to the war in Ukraine. And with the conflict showing no end in sight, many are settling down in other countries for the long haul. NPR's Charles Maines recently traveled to the southern Caucasus nation of Armenia to meet with some exiled Russians. In the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ivan Moshkin remembers arriving to his work at a Moscow bank and the shock that came next. All my male colleagues had already gone. The older people in the office said, are you an idiot? What are you still doing here? You're of military draft age. Get out now. 
before mobilization begins. With Moshkin short on money, the office pooled their cash to buy him a ticket out. That same evening, he was on his way to the airport and a new life in Armenia. With little money and no work, I fell into a deep, deep depression. For Russians who oppose the war, it's been a tough road. Repressive laws have made life dangerous at home, and growing numbers of countries are closing their doors to Russian immigration. Yet Armenia, once a Soviet republic, offers something of a refuge. Russians can travel here without a passport. Even Russian, the language, is widely spoken by locals. Moshkin, for one, says here he's breathing easier. He eventually found a job waiting tables in the capital Yerevan, and with the war grinding on, he's now applying for his residency permit. And he's not the only one. At the Russian Swabodnishkola, or free school, in downtown Yerevan, a day of classes is winding down. Launched as a pop-up education program to accommodate a few dozen families who fled here last spring, the free school is another example of the increasingly entrenched Russian presence in Armenia. Free school's founder, Anna Chegovayeva, says the whole thing started on a dare. Her friends knew she was a good organizer. What she didn't expect was to be running a full-fledged school, now with more than 180 students. The school even offers Armenian-language night classes for Russian parents. Of course, I'd love for everything to suddenly change in Russia, and together we'd all happily go home. Then there wouldn't be a need for the school. But we decided our school will exist as long as we are in this position. In fact, it seems everywhere you look in Armenia, Russians are not only making do, but settling down, opening businesses and getting involved in the community. Government figures show Armenia's GDP jumped 14 percent after the Russian influx. I try to become useful to the Armenian society, to become integrated. Ivan Devodakovsky left Moscow, fearing he could be arrested for his past participation in Russia's pro-democracy movement. He says he's now engaged in causes important to Armenia's future. I don't know if I can become an Armenian in a narrow sense, but I am a part of the Russian immigrant circle, and we are doing our best to become a good long-term guest, a good uh, roommate. And Russians are integrating in other ways. Dana Vergalush is one of hundreds of Russian IT professionals who relocated to Yerevan, in her case from southern Russia's Rostov-on-Don. Vergalush says she arrived with her daughter, intent on finding people who share her progressive politics and passion for the environment. She's since launched a series of volunteer trash cleanups, much to her surprise, with buy-in and support from the Armenian authorities. In Russia, my activities were never welcomed or approved of by the government. Not once did anyone reach out to say, that's great what you are doing, or even just say, thank you. Yet gaining acceptance in Armenia comes with accepting that a return to Russia is unlikely. Last spring, Russian President Vladimir Putin demonized Russians who fled the country in the past year as scum and traitors. Even now, Russia's parliament, the Duma, is debating measures that could strip property, perhaps even citizenship, from those expat Russians seen as openly disloyal. After a year of war, it will take fundamental changes inside Russia, even the end of the Putin era, to lure these political emigres back, says Darina Metskaya, a native of St. Petersburg. 
либо отменят все I'll go home when either they get rid of all these repressive laws or the authorities are so weak they can't enforce them. I see myself going back when I'm sure I can cross the border and I'm certain no one will arrest me. Mitskaya runs the local chapter of Kovcheg, or The Ark, a support group that provides assistance to Russians settling into life abroad and often leaving trouble behind. On the night I visited, The Ark was hosting a letter-writing campaign to Russian political prisoners currently in jail over their opposition to the war. Ivan Lubimov knew the routine better than most. Lubimov says letters from people he'd never met comforted him when he was in jail for participating in opposition rallies in his native city of Ekaterinburg. In fact, Lubimov says he left for Armenia only after authorities launched a criminal probe into his own anti-war activities, over which he has no regrets. The Russian government's policies won't change. The police won't behave any differently. The courts won't get any better. But it's still important and necessary to protest this war, to show that not all Russians support this aggressive annexation of Ukraine's territory. As to what's next, Lubimov says he'll stay in Armenia, at least for now. And with that, he started scribbling out a letter, a message intended for sender and recipient alike. It read, Sooner or later, we might both find ourselves in a new free country, breathing the free air. Until then, hold on. Charles Maines, NPR News, Yerevan, Armenia. That's just one of many stories we're reporting about the effects of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. You can find more stories and reflections by checking your local member station for NPR's special report, Russia's War in Ukraine, One Year On. To find your member station, go to npr.org stations. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Still ahead, Nikki Haley has become the second Republican to officially launch a bid for the 2024 presidential nomination. We have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. It is time that we get a Republican in there that can lead. That's coming up in 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. There were minor gains for the Dow today. It rose about a tenth of a percent, 39 points to close at 34,128. S&P picked up nearly three-tenths of a percent to end the day at 4148. The Nasdaq gained nearly one percent to finish at 12,071. Marketplace has this day in business coming up at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to utilizing sustainable practices and partnering with local artisanal craftspeople in sourcing their furniture. CircleFurniture.com. 
In sports, tip-off time at the Garden tonight for the Souths and Detroit Pistons is 7.30. Marcus Smart should be back uh, on the court tonight after he was injured last month. 56 degrees in the Boston area, a mild and beautiful day today, leading to a clear night tonight. Pretty mild as well, just below 50 with some good wind gusts. Tomorrow, sunshine and then clouds waft in through the day. Should reach about 62, may get into record-breaking territory. 56 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting the big screen return of Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon in a 4K restoration starring Michelle Yao and Chow Yun-Fat in theaters everywhere Friday. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The man who pleaded guilty to killing 10 people in a Buffalo, New York supermarket last May has been sentenced to life without parole. The killer, who's white and a self-described ethno-nationalist, targeted black shoppers in the attack. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. The day began with emotional testimonies from the loved ones of victims. Barbara Mapps spoke about her sister, Catherine Massey, a community activist. She was 72. She was at Topps Friendly Market getting groceries when Peyton Gendron walked in and opened fire, killing her and nine others. You don't come to our city and decide you don't like black people. Man, you don't know a damn thing about black people. Barbara Mapp's testimony was interrupted when one victim's family member rushed furiously at Gendron. Guards hustled the killer out of the courtroom until it was calm enough for Mapps to continue. We love our kids. We never go in no neighborhoods and take people out. The killer expressed remorse in court today and acknowledged he cannot take back what he did. But throughout the testimonies, the trauma his racist attack caused on the community was made clear. You came into the biggest part, the strongest part of the black community, and you ripped us apart. Brian Talley spoke on behalf of victim Geraldine Talley, his sister-in-law. How can you possibly stand up here and say that you're sorry? That you're sorry? You're playing this whole thing. You planned it. You put it on a video like it was a video game and watched it. The shooter is 19 years old, and he lived over three hours away from the community. Prosecutors have said during the months in which he planned the attack, he repeatedly drove to Maston Park on Buffalo's east side, a predominantly black neighborhood. He scouted the location and even counted the number of black people present. As she wiped tears off her face, Erie County Court Judge Susan Egan spoke directly to the young man. There is no place for you or your ignorant, hateful, and evil ideologies in a civilized society. There can be no mercy for you, no understanding, no second chances. Egan ended the day with an emotional reflection on the shooting's place in the larger history of racism in America. She sentenced the shooter to life without parole. You will never see the light of day as a free man ever Again, Life without parole is the highest possible sentence in New York State, which does not have the death penalty. But the shooter has also been indicted on 27 federal charges, including hate and domestic terrorism. 
The U.S. Attorney General will decide later this week whether to seek the death penalty. Defense attorneys have said the killer would be willing to plead guilty if the federal government agrees not to seek capital punishment. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. The video game industry brought in more than $200 billion last year, according to recent figures. And government regulators like the Federal Trade Commission have recently taken on a more active role in policing the industry. NPR's Vincent Acavino says one lawsuit in particular has put the whole industry on watch. Epic Games has reached a legal settlement with the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC accused the company of infringing on the privacy rights of children and questioned how they profit off of young players. Epic Games was last valued at $31 billion and makes Fortnite, which is one of the most popular video games in the world. For decades, really, the FTC has really ignored the data gathering practices of the, of the big companies. Jeff Chester is at the Center for Digital Democracy. He says Epic Games knowingly violated online child privacy laws, known as COPPA, laws that Chester helped lobby for in the late 90s. Parents of children under the age of 13 were, for a time, not properly being asked about collecting their kids' data. Josh Golan of the organization Fair Play says that Epic did start doing that a few years ago. But they didn't retroactively go back and check the ages of people who had already signed up for accounts. So Epic Games was probably illegally collecting the data of millions of children under the age of 13. The way Epic Games makes its money from younger players is also under fire from the FTC. Games like Fortnite are free to download and play, but they charge for things that make the game more expressive. You can buy skins to make your character look like Spider-Man or Naruto, and you can even buy dance moves based on popular songs for your character. I tend to go for the dances because they always do like really popular music. Mallory Supa is a 24-year-old teacher in Jacksonville, Florida, and she spent around $100 on Fortnite over a period of about three years. Tootsie Slide, Say So, Flying Ghetto, all like the TikTok versions of that. I have all of those dances. But she doesn't regret the money she spent to hit the gritty with Goku. For her, it's a steal. I've played a ton. And I also think, like, the group of friends that we play with, we all live in, like, different places. So if I were to try to travel to them and see them, it would be way more expensive than me being able to just hop on a game and play with them. It's younger players who may be more susceptible to the social pressures that fuel these purchases. With kids, it's probably really hard because... It's like constantly like, oh, look at this new thing. Look at this new thing every single day. And the FTC argues making these impulse-fueled buys was too easy. Josh Golan says that Fortnite saved credit card information after just one use. And in some cases, didn't even require authorization. Fortnite didn't even have those kind of basic safety measures to prevent accidental purchases by kids that parents might not have wanted. Within the video game industry, Fortnite is hardly the biggest offender when it comes to these so-called dark patterns that are meant to trick players into spending money. I've seen uh, games that are obviously marketed at children where they would put uh, like a very cute little pet into a cage 
and make the pet sort of cry to try to get the child to, are you sure you don't want to rescue this pet by paying, say, two bucks? Leon Shao is a PhD fellow at the University of Copenhagen and studies how video games are regulated. He's familiar with the challenges of writing laws for such a large and unwieldy industry. One money-making addition to many video games has been the loot box, where players pay real money for a random in-game reward. It's essentially a form of gambling. Belgium has made this illegal, and despite that... I found that 82 of the 100 highest-grossing iPhone games were still selling some form of loot boxes. That points to the kind of enforcement challenges U.S. regulators are up against. Josh Golan says that's why the FTC has gone after Fortnite, one of the biggest fish in the pond. And I think it's... um. Also, a big enough fine that it's going to send shockwaves across the gaming industry and cause other platforms to clean up their practices. Epic Games will pay $520 million in fines and has agreed to rework their practices. Quote, no developer creates a game with the intention of ending up here, said the company in a detailed statement to consumers. Vincent Acavino, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Coming up after years of explosive growth, sales at the clothing retailer Shine have slowed way down. In about 25 minutes, hear about the challenges for the fast fashion company. In sports tonight, the Celtics have their last matchup before the All-Star break. They host the Detroit Pistons starting at 7.30. The Celts will have Marcus Smart back on the court after he was injured last month. Boston Bruins are off tonight. We're in for a clear night ahead and a windy one. Lows about 48 degrees. For tomorrow, could be warm enough to set a record for the day as temperatures creep to the low 60s. Should start up with sunshine before rain clouds move in tomorrow. And then for Friday, another unfebruary-like day. 60 degrees for a high, plenty of rain and some wild winds. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, Building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismom.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, a conversation with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. I received an education, a tutelage early on, that to be black and to be a woman is the dichotomy of being hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. What drives her and what's giving her joy? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. With his public approval rating sagging, President Biden is taking aim at Republican plans to cut U.S. spending. Biden citing his administration's accomplishments during a speech today at a union hall in Maryland. Gas prices are down $1.60 a gallon. They're going to come down further from their peak. And inflation is coming down. Take-home pay for workers has gone up over the past several months we got more to do, but I'm telling you, the Biden economic plan is working because of you all. Since taking control of the House last month, Republicans have passed measures to reverse or pare back Biden-backed laws, including 
the Inflation Reduction Act, aimed at lowering prescription drug costs. Republicans argue federal spending is too high and will continue to fuel inflation. Today, the Independent Congressional Budget Office said if the debt ceiling isn't raised soon, the government will run out of money by July or September. The mayor of Istanbul is warning some 90,000 buildings there could be at risk of collapsing if a major earthquake strikes Turkey's largest city. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the warning comes as the death toll from last week's quake in Turkey and northern Syria now exceeds 40,000 people. Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu reportedly told a Turkish television program that the current estimate of buildings at risk of collapse in a quake is nearly twice as large as the previous administration believed. This comes after thousands of buildings collapsed in last week's deadly quake. Crews have been pulling survivors from wreckage since then. Imamoglu said, quote, we have to move very fast to improve the structures and bring them in line with Turkey's construction codes for building in earthquake-prone areas. Imamolu added that some 317,000 structures were granted amnesties that allowed the contractors to simply pay a fine. Turkey sits atop multiple fault lines and is prone to earthquakes. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Council has voted 7-5 to today to restore an elected school committee in the city. Boston is the only Massachusetts municipality where the mayor appoints the school committee members. The proposed change to an elected board needs Mayor Michelle Wu's signature to become reality. And as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that's not guaranteed. City councilors who support the change note that in 2021, 79% of Boston voters favored an elected school committee. At this point, though, it's Wu's support that matters, and she has said that now is not the time to make the change. City councilor Julia Mejia says Boston's leaders can't ignore a clear message from the electorate. At the end of the day, we were all elected, including the mayor, to represent the people. Those who put us in office expect us to do the work. This is not a moment to cop out. This is a moment to rise up. The petition, if passed, would phase in elected members over four years. It would also add two voting student members. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Water bills are about to rise in parts of Massachusetts. Communities fully served by the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority will see an average increase of about 2.2 percent, but that will vary widely from one community to the next, with Boston customers seeing increase of about half that. For communities partially served by the MWRA, rates are expected to rise by an average of about 10 percent. Calling for an ambulance owned by your city or town in Massachusetts costs more than twice the national average. A report from the state's Health Policy Commission shows an ambulance trip in the state for municipality-owned service costs nearly $1,600. The national average is $761. The report also shows commercial insurers paid municipal ambulances about double what they pay private services in the state. A researcher for the Health Policy Commission says it's not clear why that's the case. And the Jacobs Pillow Dance Festival has released its 2023 schedule. The festival in Beckett, Massachusetts, kicks off June 28th and runs through August 27th. Tickets for the general public go for sale in April. It's 4.35. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. 
55 degrees now in the Boston area. Look for clear skies tonight, some strong winds, dipping only to about 48. Then tomorrow, clouds on the increase through the day as temperatures are on the rise. Should top out at 62 degrees. Rain is on the way for Friday with highs up around 60. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Nikki Haley officially kicked off her presidential run for 2024. The former South Carolina governor is just the second Republican to launch a bid for the nomination. She painted a picture of a country full of opportunity for anyone who seizes it. Take it from me, the first minority female governor in history. America is not a racist country. Well, NPR Sarah McCammon was at that rally this morning and joins us from Charleston. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Ari. Tell us more about Haley's pitch for the White House. What'd she say? Well, as we sort of heard alluded to there, she talked about growing up in small town South Carolina, as she said, a brown girl in a place where the divisions were between black and white. She said it wasn't always easy, but she said her immigrant parents felt blessed to live in America. And she pushed back against what she described as dangerous self-loathing that she says has taken root under President Biden. It's in the classroom, the boardroom, and the back rooms of government. Every day we're told America is flawed, rotten, and full of hate. Joe and Kamala even say America's racist. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, to be clear, Biden said explicitly in 2021 that he does not believe that the American people are racist, but that black Americans have been left behind and the country needs to address that. Haley's message seemed to resonate, though, with the mostly white crowd here in Charleston. So while she's clearly trying to set a new tone in terms of policy, a lot of what she's calling for, like increased border security, is very much in line with former President Trump. And she is the second major Republican to announce a 2024 bid after Trump, who is also her former boss. Did she talk about the former president at all? Only in passing, you know, she referenced her time as United Nations ambassador in his administration. But she did talk about the need for a new generation of leaders to move past what she called division and distractions. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. And that, Ari, was one of her biggest applause lines. You know, Haley is 51. That's a generation younger than former President Trump at 76 or President Biden at 80. What are you hearing from voters there in South Carolina? Is Haley what they're looking for in 2024? Something I heard over and over again today is that it is time for new leadership in the Republican Party. Sidney Long is a 20-year-old student at the College of Charleston. There needs to be a new generation, whether it's Nikki Haley or someone else. We've got to have someone who's younger, who knows what's going on, who's more in touch. And I heard a lot of that, but like most of the Republicans I talked to today, she says she would vote for Trump if he ultimately becomes the party's nominee. Okay, where does the race go from here, both for Nikki Haley and more broadly? 
Right. Well, she's scheduled trips to Iowa and New Hampshire, which, of course, like South Carolina, are key early voting states. Another South Carolinian often talked about as a likely contender, Senator Tim Scott, is holding an event here in Charleston tomorrow evening before going to Iowa himself. And former Vice President Mike Pence is in Iowa today. The question, though, for Republicans who want someone other than Trump is if there's a big field like there was back in 2016, will they coalesce around someone who can gather enough critical mass to keep Trump from winning the nomination again? That's NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon reporting from Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks a lot. Thank you. After the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, many of the people who died or were severely injured were trapped under the rubble of collapsed buildings. A number of those structures were built a long time ago, and even some of the more recently built ones were not up to code, factors that experts say likely contributed to the soaring death toll. The disaster in Turkey and Syria has triggered concerns in other disaster-prone areas of the world, including here in the U.S., Jacob Margolis is a reporter for LAist News, and he's here to tell us more about why California especially is on alert. Hey, Jacob. Hey. Okay, so before we talk about the problems facing us here in California, what what is it about the construction of many of these buildings in Turkey and Syria that collapsed that experts think made those buildings especially vulnerable to earthquake damage? Yeah, it seems that many of the buildings that collapsed were concrete structures that didn't have adequate reinforcement to help them deal with ground motions that were really extreme. We're talking uh, a velocity of, I think it's about three feet a second, which is huge. It's still being investigated, but it will likely be found that some of the structures, they didn't have proper rebar or concrete or even wall-to-floor connections so that when the ground moved that violently, columns collapsed, and then there's nothing holding the big heavy floors up, and then the rest of the building comes down following it. Now, like I want to note, and people should know, Turkey has building codes on par with California and Japan, according to different engineers that I've spoken with. So the question is, like, why did the buildings collapse? And that's all being sorted. I know there's a delegation of engineers heading over to do some assessments, including from the U.S., um, and we'll learn more once things settle down. Right. But do you have a sense right now of how common those structural vulnerabilities that you've described in concrete buildings in Turkey and Syria, how common those are in California buildings? Yeah, we have a lot of concrete buildings here in California that we know could very well collapse in a big earthquake. Anyone who thinks it's not going to happen or that it couldn't happen is delusional. I mean, we have, for instance, in Los Angeles, a program that is specifically meant for a type of concrete building built prior to the late 1970s that is saying, hey, you need to retrofit these buildings. But the timeline is like 25 plus years, probably. Mm -hmm. Just to put it in perspective, there's a 15% chance that we're going to get hit here in Southern California with a 7.8 magnitude or greater quake sometime in the next 30 years. Um, And so we have a lower concentration of those types of concrete buildings here. And that's one thing that we actually have working for us is that we've got a lot of sprawl, especially here in Southern California, where I am, a lot of single family wood framed homes. And those do pretty well in earthquakes. And they're much easier to retrofit than the big concrete buildings as well. Well, if experts know that there are these deeply concerning structural weaknesses in so many buildings in California, and we are expecting the so-called big ones someday here in the state, why haven't these buildings been brought up to code? Like, why are they given so much time to get up to code? What are the challenges? Yeah, so for bigger buildings, retrofits can be extremely expensive. 
they take a lot of time. And um, whether we demand those retrofits happen faster is kind of up to uh, you know city officials and the public uh, because they they do take a lot of money as well. Yeah, a lot of money and a lot of time. Well, then, I mean, practically speaking, for the average person, what are like next steps people can take if they live or work in a building that they think might not be structurally sound, given everything that we've talked about? I mean, what can people actually do? You know, find out if the building has been retrofitted. Here in Los Angeles, there's a website that you can search to tell you when it was built and if there, if it has been retrofitted. Uh, for a lot of other cities, uh, municipalities across the state, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Mm. So, if it was built prior to the late 1970s and it's a concrete structure, just know that there is a possibility that it could come down in the next big quake. That is Jacob Margolis of LAist News. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than a half million people in Massachusetts get their drinking water from private wells. But there are no state or federal rules about these wells and the toxic chemicals known as PFAS that can seep into them. Those chemicals have been linked to a growing list of health concerns. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, this lack of oversight leaves private well owners vulnerable to these so-called forever chemicals. Bill Watcher lives in Stowe, a small town about 30 miles outside Boston. Hello, Bill. Hi, Hi Barbara. Yeah. Hi. How are you? There's Hi. a farm across the street from his house and woods in the backyard. For a town this size, it has a lot of conservation land and still a lot of open spaces. So it's, it has that bucolic feel to it. The town also has a couple known sources of PFAS pollution like an old fire station and a former mill. PFAS chemicals have been used in consumer products, industry, and firefighting foam for decades, and contamination is widespread. So Watcher decided to have his well tested for PFAS, just to be safe. When the result came back, he was shocked. It was 52 parts per trillion, more than twice the state limit for a public water system. He says it was scary. I mean, you've lived here for 37 years, and you've brought up two children here, and so you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. Watcher wasn't sure where to turn. There are no state or town rules for testing or filtering water from individual private wells. So he searched the Internet. A full house filtration system can cost thousands of dollars. Watcher found a smaller filter to install under his kitchen sink. It cost close to $600, and he paid for it himself. It is a very confusing system, and it really leads to a lot of regional inequities. Amy Shea is the president and CEO of the Health Foundation of Central Massachusetts. And she says Watcher's situation is not surprising. In more rural parts of the state, there is not public water infrastructure very few protections, lots of risk for contamination. 
as a result of poorly maintained systems. In Stowe, every single home relies on private well water. That makes it impossible to know the full extent of PFAS contamination in the town. So the red dots, the dots uh, signify public water supplies. In her office in Town Hall, Stowe Town Administrator Denise Demkoski has spread maps across a long table. So this first map, this is an overview of Stowe in general. She points to PFAS hotspots near the former firefighting academy, a Bose facility, and an old mill. So green means no PFAS, yellow is the next level. Um, then it goes to pink and then red and now a purple level, um, which I was told they created just for Stowe because we had levels over 90 parts per trillion. So they had to create a new color for us. But most of the map isn't colored in at all. Not because there's no PFAS, but because people haven't reported their test results or haven't tested at all. Testing a well for PFAS can cost hundreds of dollars, more than some can afford or want to pay. And what if they do test and what happens? And then, you know, some people can't afford a $5,000 treatment system and then the filter's on top of that. There's another reason besides cost that private well owners are reluctant to test for PFAS. They're concerned about lowering the value of their home. And if their property turns out to be a PFAS source, they could be liable for damages to their neighbors' homes. You know, I think there's that hesitancy and there are people who are concerned about that. Jennifer Peterson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association, an industry group. She's also a concerned homeowner with a private well. And I have not yet tested my well because I'm really not quite certain about the liability that might be incurred by doing so. Some towns are forcing the issue. The Harvard Board of Health requires residents to test for PFAS before selling their house and Stowe's Board of Health is considering the same. Clean water advocate Amy Shea says the state should step in and regulate private wells like private septic systems. I have always found it so interesting that the state regulates the wastewater that leaves somebody's home, and yet it does not regulate the water that is entering a home and being consumed. Bills pending in the state legislature do include provisions for private well owners, like giving them access to money from a proposed PFAS trust fund, or allowing the state to regulate private wells. The legislation will likely face pushback from homeowners who don't want the government meddling in their private property. But Stowe homeowner Bill Watcher says private well owners shouldn't be nervous about testing for PFAS. When it comes to your drinking water, he says, it's better to know what's there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Our reporting on PFAS continues tomorrow morning with scientists learning more about how these forever chemicals affect our bodies. For tips on how to reduce your exposure to PFAS, visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Coming up in about 25 minutes on WBUR, five students injured during the shooting at Michigan State University remain hospitalized. One is the child of migrant farm workers. Her family's trying to raise money to pay for her rehabilitation. That's coming up. We've got clear skies ahead tonight, strong winds down around 48 for a low tonight. Tomorrow we should wake up to sunshine before rain clouds move in, and temperatures should reach the low 60s tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. After eight years, Nicola Sturgeon has unexpectedly resigned as the First Minister of Scotland. Her shock departure could mark a new chapter in the Scottish fight for independence and in the tumultuous relationship between Edinburgh and London. Reporter Villa Marks joins us from London. Hi there. Hi, Ari. How are you? I'm good. Why did Sturgeon say she's stepping down? Well, she said the position had taken a toll on her to use her words, physically and mentally, and that in recent years, the life of a politician in Britain contains a lot more, quote, intensity and brutality than was perhaps the case in the past. How much of this has to do with Brexit, which was such a big shakeup during her tenure? Well, it it is worth noting Sturgeon was the head of government in Scotland during the Brexit referendum and its aftermath, and that, of course, created a new level of hostility towards Britain's political class among many people. A majority of folks in Scotland didn't want Brexit to happen, and and given Sturgeon's willingness to openly criticise not only that Brexit decision, but also a whole host of other actions taken by a succession of British prime ministers down in London, she's gained a fair few opponents in the political realm, shall we say. After nearly a decade leading Scotland, what does this announcement mean politically for Scotland and for the UK as a whole? Well, in Scotland, Sturgeon has really dominated politics for the best part of a decade, as you mentioned there. And by stepping down, she's leaving a massive power vacuum, not only in the government itself, but also inside her own Scottish National Party, or SNP, where political analysts essentially say there's no obvious successor. When it comes to the Scottish independence movement that she's long championed, even Sturgeon's own predecessor, a man called Alex Salmond, has said it is now being left with no clear strategy. So for the UK as a whole, this does matter because Sturgeon had for years been pushing for another referendum on Scottish independence. You may remember the last one back in 2014. I covered it as a London correspondent, yeah. Well, in in recent months, that prospect has faded after the court said she could not organise that kind of referendum again unilaterally without approval from the British government down in Westminster. And British Conservative Prime Ministers, including Theresa May and Boris Johnson, they've said that was not something they were going to allow. Well, so if there is no obvious successor for her, what happens next? Well, you know, in a practical sense, Sturgeon has said she'll remain as First Minister until a new leader of her SNP party's selected. She'll keep working as a member of the Scottish Parliament until at least May 2026, when the next election's expected. And although the current British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, thanks Sturgeon in a statement for her, quote, long-standing service, it's not entirely clear whether a new SNP leader will be more hardline when it comes to that defining political issue, Scottish independence, or if the next leader of Scotland's government will be able to develop a a warmer, indeed a a more productive relationship with Sunak and the UK government. For years, Sturgeon's criticised, indeed antagonised her counterparts in London, but her personal popularity in Scotland has actually fallen in recent months, and any new leader will need to remain popular and deliver on a whole host of other local government promises around things like healthcare and education and energy if they're to once more seek to rely on any kind of majority in that quest for Scotland's future independence after more than 300 years as part of the United Kingdom. Reporter Villa Marks in London, thanks a lot. Thank you. Fast fashion is known for being exploitative to workers, burdensome to the environment. But, you know, it's so inexpensive that many shoppers keep fast fashion retailers growing. Xi'an is a Chinese online fast fashion retailer, and it has been blowing up since the pandemic. Kathleen Chen is the retail correspondent for Business of Fashion, and she reports that Xi'an's streak may be coming to an end. She joins us now. Welcome. 
Thank you so much, Elsa. So happy to be here. So happy to have you. Okay, so let's talk about Shein's beginnings. Like, how did this company make its start? Yeah, so Shein was actually founded more than a decade ago in the late aughts. It had many iterations before it found its current form, which is an e-commerce fast fashion retailer that serves largely a Western audience. So it is a Chinese company, but its consumers are largely based in the US and Europe and outside of Asia. Wait, so when did Shein start seeing like mega success? Like how successful was the company at its peak? So really it was the pandemic that gave way for Shein to really thrive. People were online, people had money from the stimulus checks. And in 2021, Shein clocked in uh, just south of $16 billion in sales. Wow. Uh, and at any given time, this is our analysis from last year, Shein offered consumers more than 300,000 styles. <laughs> uh, that's compared to uh, between four to 7,000 for H&M and Zara. Well, I'm wondering, you know, as you mentioned, Shein is not alone in the fact that it's a company that offers thousands of styles at any given moment. Is there such a thing as a fast fashion store that's actually getting it right? That's a great question, Elsa. I, I think the answer is complicated. I think fashion as a whole has a lot to work on, and it's not just fast fashion retailers. But there are some, uh, like H&M, for instance, that actually lead the pack in terms of their sustainability efforts. H&M is known for materials innovation. Uh, it's made some really great strides in, uh, in terms of cutting their carbon emissions, and, and they're very transparent about it. In fact, H&M ranked, I think, in the top five of our own analysis, uh, our, the BOF Sustainability Index, of the biggest fashion companies in the world. And so, you know, ironically, some fast fashion retailers actually excel compared with other fashion companies. Well, let me ask you, do you think it's fair that Shein has been sort of singled out disproportionately among fast fashion retailers as being the face, the perpetrator when it comes to encouraging excessive consumption? Honestly, Elsa, I, I, I don't think it is. There's an inherent privilege in being able to criticize fast fashion yes. because you don't you can afford yes. more. And, you know, Shein does have a lot of defenders online who respond to the criticism by bringing up the fact that sustainable fashion is inaccessible for a lot of consumers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Shein's clothing is very, very affordable. And for some of its shoppers, you know, it's Shein, it's Walmart, it's uh, the off-price retailers that they're they're able to afford. And so at the end of the day, I think until sustainable, totally ethical fashion becomes something that everybody can choose to buy, it, it is unfair. Kathleen Chen, retail correspondent for Business of Fashion. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden wants to cut the cancer death rate by 50 percent as part of his moonshot. Some say this is possible, but not without obstacles. But it's absolutely essential that we find a way for everyone with cancer to have their care covered. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll hear from the director of the National Cancer Institute, who was diagnosed with breast cancer. Iranians of all political backgrounds complain of a dead-end economy. Some fault and corruption in the government, while others blame a different source. We are under the boots of America, and these full sanctions are uh, making life hard for everybody. Also how one man survived under the rubble of the earthquake in Turkey. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Peyton Gendron, who opened fire in a Buffalo, New York supermarket in May of last year, killing 10 people, has now been sentenced to life in prison without parole. Gendron, who's white and a self-described ethno-nationalist, targeted black people in the attack. Bjorn's Jasmine Gars reports. The day began with testimonies from the loved ones of victims. Barbara Massey spoke about her sister, Catherine Massey. She was 72 when Gendron killed her. You don't come to our city and decide you don't like black people. Man, you don't know a damn thing about black people. Gendron expressed remorse but acknowledged that he can't take back what he did. Here's Erie County Court Judge Susan Egan. The harsh reality is that white supremacy has been an insidious cancer on our society and nation since its inception. She gave Gendron life sentence without parole. The U.S. Attorney General will decide later this week whether to seek the death penalty. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. The U.S. government could run out of money to pay its bills sometime between July and September. That is, unless lawmakers come to an agreement on raising the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the latest analysis from the Congressional Budget Office could add more fuel to a partisan showdown over the matter. The latest report will likely give House 
cost Republicans more ammunition in their push to cut government spending as the party remains deadlocked with President Biden over the terms for lifting the nation's borrowing limit. Speaking in Maryland, Biden once again warned the GOP against using the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip. I made it clear in the State of the Union, I will not negotiate whether or not we pay our debt. I will not allow this nation to default. House Republicans are demanding drastic cuts to federal spending before agreeing to raise the debt ceiling. But what that legislation would look like and how it would pass both chambers of Congress is anyone's guess. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Attorneys for Congressman Matt Gates say the Justice Department has decided not to bring federal charges against the Florida Republican. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the decision comes after an investigation into possible sex trafficking. In a statement, Gates attorneys Mark Mukasey and Isabel Kirshner say the Justice Department has informed them that investigators have wrapped up their probe into allegations of sex trafficking and obstruction of justice, and that the department, they say, has determined not to bring any charges against Gates. The Justice Department declined to comment. Federal investigators were examining whether Gates violated federal sex trafficking laws and whether he had had a relationship with an underage girl. Gates, who has been one of former President Trump's most vocal allies and supporters on the Hill, has always maintained he did nothing wrong. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, stocks gained ground. The Dow up 38 points. The Nasdaq rose 110 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Most Massachusetts cities and towns served by the MBTA have submitted plans for how they'll implement new zoning for multifamily housing near T stations. Those plans are required under a new state housing law. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports that Governor Moore Healy says the law is crucial to keep housing affordable in the state. Governor Healy told WBUR's Radio Boston that 97 percent of the affected communities met the January 31st deadline for submitting their plans. She says that compliance is encouraging, but only one step towards increasing affordable housing. I think what we need to do is have conversations directly with communities, work with them on how to get there. And Healy says not getting there isn't an option. I do not want to see families or businesses leaving for North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, because they cannot afford the cost of housing. The Department of Housing and Community Development has not made it clear whether it will punish communities that don't submit zoning plans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. On January 31st, the first day that sports betting was legal in Massachusetts, people placed more than a half million dollars in sports bets at the state's three casinos. The State Gaming Commission says the taxes generated for Massachusetts on that day amounted to nearly $10,000. For the entire month of January, the three casinos generated a total of about $97 million, with the state getting just over $27 million in taxes for the month. 2022 was the second warmest year ever recorded for the water in the Gulf of Maine. The Gulf of Maine Research Institute says the average sea surface temperature was just over 53.5 degrees. That's nearly 4 degrees above the 40-year average and just below the record that was set two years ago. David Reedmiller is director of the Institute's Climate Center. He says the Gulf will likely continue to warm. The trend is undeniable, and unless and until global emissions of greenhouse gases are reduced significantly, that increase in warming is going to continue. Reedmiller says warmer temperatures are already causing the region's sea levels to rise higher than the national average. 
56 degrees in the Boston area. Clear skies tonight should be windy. Temperatures about 48 degrees for a low. And tomorrow, clouds on the increase through the day. Temperatures on the rise should top out at about 62 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. While I was in Iran last week, I heard something that summed up how life is going there. We were chatting with a woman in her 60s in Tehran's Grand Bazaar, this enormous labyrinth of shops and stalls, spice dealers, perfume dealers, carpet salesmen. She says that we have a nice saying in Iran. Uh, We say that the first 100 years of life is difficult. The rest will be easy. (laughs) She told us through our interpreter that she was just looking around, not really buying, which is understandable because the economy in Iran is terrible, to put it bluntly. Prices are up, way up, for just about everything. People's incomes, not so much. Uh, Nobody's happy, but we're forced to get along because there's nothing else we can do. (laughs) We went to Iran to hear from regular people after months of protests following the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masa Amini. She was pulled off the street for allegedly violating the country's strict dress code for women. She died in police custody. That was the spark. But part of what fueled the protests was a sense of economic desperation. Nearly everyone we talked to in Iran brought it up, even fervent supporters of the regime. At the Grand Bazaar, you hear it before you even set foot inside. Out front, illegal currency traders are circling, swapping dollars and euros for Iranian tomans. At first, no one wants to talk to us. Saying there are lots of uh, cameras here. And uh, I don't want to do an interview. This trader pointing up at cameras bristling from the walls above us was one of many people we spoke with who worried about the risks of speaking critically about life in Iran. We agreed not to use names. People come to this black market because legally you can only exchange a maximum of about 5,000 U.S. dollars. The Iranian government wants to keep people from hoarding them. And what is the price today? If I if I gave him one dollar, he gives me what? Um, Forty-four thousand and five hundred tomans. Iran's official currency is the rial, but people often refer to prices in tomans. Whichever you're using, what you just heard is for Iranians about the worst the exchange rate has ever been. Inflation in Iran is close to 50 percent. We head into the bazaar and before long find ourselves sipping tea, sitting on a pile of carpets, swapping stories with the man trying to sell them. Why you are not sitting? Please sit there. Okay. Okay. I was here three years ago in 2020 and come back to see what's changed, how people are getting Everything has changed. Like what? The change means the life is changed, you know, for example. The price is expensive three, five, five, six, seven times more than price before. For everything, you know, for the house, for the food. 
And the weak currency makes carpets more expensive, too. Silk from China costs more. So does Merino wool from Australia. On top of that, there are fewer buyers for his rugs. When the U.S. withdrew from the nuclear agreement with Iran in 2018, it reimposed tough sanctions, including a ban on importing carpets from Iran. My main customer was America or, or, or Europe or abroad. That is the, at least, I think, is like 70 percent of the carpet, which they make, uh, they had a customer in the in the outside of Iran. 70% of his customers from outside Iran. That is how it was today between sanctions and fewer tourists. He sells more like 10% of his carpets to foreigners, mostly Chinese and Russian, who are not bound by U.S. and European sanctions. Right on cue, as we're wrapping up our interview, a Russian couple wanders in to take a look at his offerings. A few hours later, in a different part of town, Manicheri Street in South Tehran, we meet a 75-year-old man. He's got a blanket laid out on the sidewalk, selling old camera parts, sods and ends. He's retired, but comes here to keep busy and make a little extra money. Like the carpet seller, he blames most of Iran's economic problems on American sanctions. We are under the boots of uh, America, uh, under the boots of the UK and some other countries perhaps, and these full sanctions are uh, making life hard for everybody. What would you like America to do? Lift sanctions? Put more pressure on the government? What? America um, hasn't really done anything for us ever, ever. If we want to do something, we have to do something for ourselves. To fact-check some of this, I spoke with Saeed Leilaz. He's an economist who's advised a number of Iranian presidents, including Hassan Rouhani, a relative moderate who left office in 2021. Leilaz says that, yes, U.S. sanctions have hurt, but he puts the blame for Iran's economic malaise squarely at the feet of Iran's leaders. All pains which you see in our streets is directly comes from mismanagement of economy. From Iranian mismanagement. Exactly. Iran has created exactly. its own economic exactly. problems. Exactly. Some looters are governing this economy and this country. Leilaz says Iran's runaway inflation is caused by how much money the government prints to fund its spending and because of corruption at state-owned banks. And he says investors are afraid to do business in Iran because the government has a history of seizing companies. On the plus side, he points to growing economic ties with Russia and India, to growing trade in the region with Afghanistan, Iraq. I know it's impossible to predict the future, but if I were to ask you 10 years from now, where do you see Iran's economy being? What's the range of possibilities? Much, much better than now it will be. I am very hopeful about the future of Iran. Iran will solve all problems, like China, like Vietnam, like even Russia, like every other totalitarian country in the world in the past, in which despotism will remain, but from ideological point of view, everything will change. Whether or not that comes to pass, right now, life in Iran is hard for many. Back on Manicheri Street, I pop into a corner grocery store and buy a Twix for 40,000 Iranian tomans, about a buck. There's a 27-year-old working the counter, and we strike up a conversation. He tells me in Iran he can afford a cup of coffee, but not a house or a car, not the things he needs to be independent. You can't plan for the future in Iran, he says. It's just a dream for us that is not going to happen. 
I can only dream it, but I can't afford it. Who is responsible? Who do you blame for the economy and daily life being like this? Uh, the regime. If I want to be clear, the regime. I ask him about the recent protests against the regime, which have now largely been suppressed and driven underground. It's not a protest. Let's say it's, it's a change. It's going to happen. I ask whether he still has hope. And here, his eyes light up. I didn't lost my hope. And I hope all my countrymen don't lose their hope. Every change like this needs time. Tomorrow, we'll look at the dissent that fueled those protests and what happens to it now. Tonight, the community of East Lansing, Michigan, and people from the surrounding area are gathering for a vigil to honor the students killed and wounded in a mass shooting on Michigan State University's campus Monday night. Three students lost their lives. Five others remain hospitalized. One of those struggling to recover is the child of migrant workers. Michelle Jokish-Polo from a member station WKAR reports. On Monday evening, Guadalupe Guapia Perez was one of the students caught in the crossfire of the gunman responsible for the mass shooting. She's a junior studying hospitality and business. Her close friends call her Lupe or Lupita. Leslie Herrera is one of her best friends. The two met through MSU's College Assistance Migrant Program, or CAMP. It's a program that specializes in supporting children of migrant farm workers attending college. Herrera says she found out in the early morning hours on Tuesday that Lupe was one of the victims and was hospitalized. She underwent surgery and is now stable. Herrera says the camp community on campus is really tight-knit and is struggling to come to terms with what happened on Monday. I know a lot of us like are really glad that we made it out safe and in time. And she says they're also really sorry about all the others who didn't. A hospital spokesperson says Lupe and the other four students who survived the shooting remain in critical condition. In a web posting, Lupe's older sister, Selena, describes Lupe as incredibly hardworking, focused, and ambitious. She says Lupe chose a career path that's never been explored by someone in her family. The Wapia Perez family lives in South Florida, but during crop harvesting season, they travel across the country to pick fruits and vegetables. Lupe grew up doing that work. The director of camp at Michigan State, Luis Garcia, says students like Lupe often have the additional responsibility of working several jobs while going to school to try and support their families back home. If you tell students what distinguishes uh, a camp scholar from a regular, you'll find that many of our students are sending money home. On the contrary, the general student body is receiving funds from home. Now, the Wapia Perez family is facing a harsh financial reality. Doctors have told them that the process for Lupe's full recovery could take months of care and rehabilitation. Because Lupe doesn't have health insurance, the entire cost of her care would fall on her family. That's why the family has set up a GoFundMe page. And Ms. Yu's camp office is also working to support the family with any additional expenses. Today, Guadalupe Wapia Perez's family arrived in the Lansing area and plan to stay here until Lupe is released from the hospital. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishbolo in East Lansing.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the FAA is struggling with aging technology and no permanent leader. That story's coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. On Wall Street, there are minor gains for the Dow. It rose about a tenth of a percent, 39 points, to close at 34,128. S&P picked up nearly three-tenths of a percent to end the day at 41.48. The Nasdaq gained nearly one percent to finish at 12,071. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Boston Children's Hospital has announced its new chief of pediatrics, Dr. Wendy Chung. Chung comes to Boston from Columbia University's Irving Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Children's. She has more than 20 years' experience as a clinical geneticist. She replaces Dr. Gary Fleischer, who led the department for more than 20 years. This is WBUR. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Sales and service of new and pre-owned Subarus, celebrating Washington's birthday all month. CitysideSubaru.com. The winds have been blowing at a pretty good clip today. They will tonight as well. Overnight lows dipping just as far as 48. Tomorrow should start off bright and then bring clouds, the off chance of showers. We could enter record-breaking territory as temperatures reach the low 60s. Friday should be rainy and windy, about 60 degrees tops. 55 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. At least 50 percent. That is how much President Biden wants to cut the cancer death rate in the next quarter century. It's part of his so-called cancer moonshot that he started when he was vice president. And Biden recommitted to the effort during last week's State of the Union. For the lives we can save. For the lives we can say and the lives we've lost, let this be a truly American moment that rallies the country and the world together and prove that we can still do big things. Well, accomplishing those big things, like better treatments, fewer deaths, building more support for patients and families, much of all that will fall on Dr. Monica Bertignoli. She's a cancer surgeon and, since last October, the head of the National Cancer Institute. But fighting cancer is not just a professional mission for Dr. Bertignoli. It's a personal one, too. She was diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer last December. Dr. Bertignoli joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much, Elsa. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you. I just want to start by asking you, how are you doing? How are you feeling these days? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Good. I'm I'm well into my treatment and uh, my family and my physicians are taking very good care of me. So is the team at NCI, by the way. That's really good to hear. What is it like to be diagnosed with a disease that you have spent so much of your professional life treating? 
Well, I think I was shocked just like anyone would be. You know, I went in for my regular mammogram expecting it to be negative like all the others and got a nasty surprise. And so um, now I know what it feels like. Do you see yourself entering any clinical trials yourself? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. I'm on a clinical trial right now. Oh, First wow. thing I asked my doctors was, is there anything available for me? And there was a study available for me and I signed on. What is that like, just being part of the process now? Oh, I'm just happy to do it. I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that I thought about so much since this diagnosis is just how grateful I am to all the women who've been on clinical trials that have produced the treatments that I am receiving. Yeah. It's the least I can do. <laughs> it's the least you can do. Well, President Biden has laid out some pretty ambitious goals for his cancer moonshot, such as cutting the cancer death rate by 50 percent in 25 years, as we mentioned. How doable is that piece of it, you think? So we can do it, but it is not going to be easy and it is going to take a lot of collaboration. NCI can do a lot contributing the science and the research behind that goal, but it's going to take all of our society to play their role in doing the prevention, the effective treatment for every single patient throughout our entire country. Finally, it's not just a numbers game. We might be able to drop the mortality rate by 50% by only focusing on the very most common tumors, and of course we can't mm. do that. We have to do it across the board. So even the very rare tumors will also see their rate dropped dramatically. Well, I, I ask about the feasibility of that particular goal because you are someone who's even acknowledged that clinical trials need to be streamlined. There's a lot of criticism that life-saving treatments take too long to be approved and that it's really hard to get into clinical trials that could potentially improve treatment. So how do you address those challenges now as the director of the National Cancer Institute? We can be a lot smarter in how we design our trials, a lot more lightning focused on achieving exactly the data we need. The second is we really need more trials. We have a wealth of opportunity that the basic science community is providing us in new therapies that I like to say is like a fire hose, but unfortunately it goes down to the size of a garden hose in terms of our ability actually to support and conduct trials. Yeah. You use the phrase lightning focused. You want to see the efforts be lightning focused. I mean, the National Cancer Institute still does have to exist within the rest of the federal public health system, a system that's bureaucratic and extremely complex. Can it be made more efficient in time to meet President Biden's goal, you think? Yes. I'll give you one quick example. We've just launched a new collaboration, a new trial for patients with lung cancer that was a partnership between NCI, the FDA, the drug companies Merck and Lilly, and the National Clinical Trials Network, and the Lung Med Program. And this trial, it was produced in record time. But the reason it happened is because every single one of those partners we're committed to making it happen quickly and being very simple. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to talk about the personal financial costs of cancer treatments to patients because a lot of the most innovative treatments come at a very high price. And I mean that literally. Like, how can patients get the benefits of these advances in medicine without being ruined financially? Oh, it's a terrible challenge. 
we're getting better. Our patients are getting better access to coverage every year that goes by. But it's absolutely essential that we find a way for everyone with cancer to have their care covered so that they can live a full life without being bankrupt as a result of their treatment. I mean, if I may just put more texture on this point, our work with Kaiser Health News on medical debt showed that cancer patients were among the most seriously affected. It showed that about two-thirds of adults with health care debt who have had cancer themselves or in their families have cut spending on food, clothing, or just other household basics. And one poll showed that one in four people have declared bankruptcy or lost their home to eviction or foreclosure. So, like, I just can't imagine facing such a terrible choice to to face either potentially dying from cancer or living in financial ruin. I mean, how do we get to a place where everyone's cancer care is covered, as you just said it should be? Yeah, well, I think at NCI, we are, we're a research institute. We're focused on research. So what we can do is we can determine what's the best treatment, what's the most effective treatment that can hopefully minimize healthcare cost. We can also help identify what's the best way to deliver care in the community so that it's very efficient. But then I think this is part of what President Biden is talking about. We're not going to solve the problem without the rest of government and the rest of society stepping up to solve problems like this one. As someone who's done cancer research for decades, in what research area have you seen the most payoff in terms of helping the most patients? There have been some truly dramatic new treatments like immunotherapy, which, you know, has been very exciting. Some other new targeted therapies have been very exciting for particular diseases like melanoma and lung cancer and some of the tissues of, of blood but those are really, you know, very powerful for individual smaller groups of patients where the thing that truly has made a huge difference in terms of absolute numbers, the single biggest thing has been having people stop smoking. Hmm. It's so special. It means there's no cancer. That's what we want. We don't want to yeah. be treating it ever. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Monica Bertinoli is the director of the National Cancer Institute. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Elsa. It's great to be here. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're in for a clear night and a windy one. Lows about 48 degrees. Tomorrow could be warm enough to set a record for the day as temperatures creep to the low 60s. Should start up with sunshine tomorrow and then rain clouds move in later in the day. Friday, another unfebruary-like day. 60 degrees for a high, plenty of rain and some wild winds around as well. 55 degrees now in Boston. Tip-off time at the Garden tonight for the Celtics and Detroit Pistons is 7.30. Marcus Smart will be back on the court after he was injured last month. It's now 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony Award-winning musical is coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. And now a second week of performances has just been added. Into the Woods plays at Emerson Colonial Theatre for two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheatre.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, a conversation with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. 
I received an education, a tutelage early on, that to be black and to be a woman is the dichotomy of being hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. What drives her and what's giving her joy? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York, a white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket last year has been sentenced to life without parole. Peyton Gendron was also forced to hear from relatives of his victims who expressed their pain and anger over the racist attack. Here's Wayne Jones speaking on behalf of his mother, Celestine Cheney. I watched you kill my mom. I watched you on the Internet. I watched you shoot her once, reload. And shoot her again. Today's sentencing was briefly disrupted when a man in the courtroom rushed at Gendron and was quickly restrained. Gendron expressed remorse but acknowledged he can't take back what he did. The judge said his rampage was a reckoning for a nation founded and built in part on white supremacy. Climate scientists are one step closer to understanding how quickly ice in Antarctica is melting, as NPR's Rebecca Hersher tells us. A pair of new studies focuses on a crucial glacier on the western edge of the continent. The Thwaites Glacier is melting rapidly because of climate change, but predicting how quickly the glacier will melt is difficult and important because the glacier contains enough fresh water to raise global sea levels by about two feet. One of the biggest challenges is figuring out what is happening deep down, where the ice meets relatively warm ocean water. In a pair of new studies, more than 40 scientists announced important new measurements from that part of Thwaites Glacier. Brittany Schmidt of Cornell University is one of the authors of both studies. There's many, many ways in which the ice can change. And at Thwaites, we're seeing all of them. The scientists spent months living on the glacier to conduct the research. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 38 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says she will soon introduce a tax relief package. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, the governor said Massachusetts is a great state, but it's expensive to live and do business here. What are the things we can offer for families when you talk about child tax credits and the like? The goal here is to make Massachusetts more affordable. It's necessary for our families, and also it's really important for our competitiveness. Healy did not get into specifics, but she said a tax package will be filed along with her budget proposal on March 1st. UMass Amherst is moving closer to finding its next chancellor. University officials will be asked tomorrow to choose Javier Reyes for the post after UMass President Marty Meehan recommended him today. Reyes currently serves as the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. If he takes the job as the UMass uh, chancellor, UMass Amherst chancellor, he'll be the first Hispanic person to lead the university. The former superintendent of schools in Everett has pleaded guilty to additional counts of indecent assault and battery. Last week, a jury convicted Frederick Forrestair of indecent assault against a 41-year-old female employee. He was sentenced to serve 90 days in the House of Correction with a balance suspended for two years. Today, Forrestair pleaded guilty to indecently assaulting two other women in 2015. Hundreds of thousands of people in Massachusetts get their drinking water from private wells. Those wells can get contaminated by toxic chemicals known as PFAS. 
There are no state or federal laws that require well owners to test for PFAS, and many homeowners don't test on their own because of the cost. As WBR's Barbara Moran reports, a measure on Beacon Hill is designed to change that. Testing a private well for PFAS can cost hundreds of dollars, and installing a home filter can cost thousands. The legislation aims to create a trust fund that would help private well owners with costs. Representative Kate Hogan is one of the bill's authors. We need to set up this remediation trust fund to provide grants for addressing PFAS in drinking water and groundwater um, and to expand eligible recipients. And that, in particular, is private well owners. The bill also requires that the state set health guidelines for PFAS in private wells. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. You can get a closer look at the Titanic shipwreck tonight at 7.30. That's when the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution will release more than an hour of rare footage of the underwater wreckage on its YouTube channel. Uh, in 1985, a team from Woods Hole helped locate the Titanic's final resting place. The video was shot the next year. Once again, you can see the video on the YouTube channel for the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution at 7.30 tonight. Look for clear skies tonight. Some strong winds dipping only to about 48 degrees. Then tomorrow, clouds on the increase through the day. Temperatures rising should top out at 62 Rain is on the way for Friday. Breezy, still mind-bendingly mild, up around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Now for a story from a survivor in Turkey, someone who can describe what it's like when the walls literally come down around you. The earthquake that killed tens of thousands in Turkey and Syria was especially deadly because it happened when most people were asleep. NPR's Daniel Estrin in southern Turkey met one of the lucky ones who made it out. Ali Kafadenk was sleeping in bed with his wife Merve when their six-story apartment building started to shake. We met him in the street outside a mountain of rubble. He says his wife poked him and woke him up, saying there was an earthquake. He said, no, it'll pass. Then, two opposite walls caved in, making sort of a concrete tent over their bed. It was so low, they couldn't sit up. He spoke to my interpreter. We were stuck under um, the walls some, with, with the shape of like an upside-down V, and that's what protected us. What were you thinking when you were stuck in that small space? We thought that we would die. That was the only option we thought. Uh, we thought like any minute there's going to be something uh, that's going to come crashing down on our heads and uh, this is going to be the end. This is one way several people did survive the earthquake, a Turkish emergency response team told us. A wall tipping onto something and leaving a small triangle void for someone to survive in. The cold weather also helped. Survivors didn't sweat as much, which delayed dehydration. Kafadenk and his wife Merve were only there an hour and a half. 
but it was terrifying and claustrophobic. He threw himself over his wife to protect her, and they cried together and prayed together. We were saying to each other that we came from God, we will go back to God. Then he heard his building sink and the earth move. It was a sound that I've never heard before. It feels like it's a supernatural sound. Um, it was something like a really strong and loud and low uh, thunder. It's something like the sound that we hear in the sci-fi movies. The building was still shifting and crumbling. Floors above them fell into the street. Somehow, there was an opening. It was too dusty to see. He felt it, snowy cold air. And that is when he heard his neighbor's screams. My baby's stuck here. My leg is stuck there. My mom is under here, and my dad's over there. Kafedink and his wife also shouted, and that is when someone pulled them out. Someone else gave him a pair of shoes. Now, Kafedink is staying with family out of town. He's back here for the first time since the earthquake. He says, seeing it, it feels like I'm living through all of it again. I'm feeling fear, sadness, and loss. He says only two other people in the building survived, out of dozens. He and his wife are school teachers, and they can't reach their colleagues. He thinks they've died. One of the few things he could recover from the building were letters of appreciation from his students. He wonders how many of them survived. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Islaya, Turkey. Oakland, California's police department is in turmoil again. The city's new mayor has placed the police chief on paid administrative leave, a decision that follows a scathing oversight report involving a hit and run by one of his officers. The move has angered many people in a city that has cycled through a staggering number of police chiefs in the last decade. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports from Oakland. 2023 was supposed to mark a fresh start for Oakland. There's a new mayor, Shang Tao, the first Hmong American elected to lead a major city. And Oakland was on the cusp of ending two decades of federal monitoring, the longest such oversight in U.S. history, after meeting almost all reform benchmarks in the wake of a civil rights abuse settlement. The latest chief to lead that reform effort is Leron Armstrong, who has impressed many by leading from the front. I appreciate Chief Armstrong because he came in boots on the ground. He ain't sitting behind the desk at all. Nina Carter is a violence interrupter in East Oakland, work that involves difficult street-level efforts to try to mediate conflicts, respond to homicides, and support victims in one of the city's highest crime areas. Carter says putting the popular chief on leave is a big setback for the fragile trust he was building in neighborhoods. He was reachable, attainable. I have his personal cell phone. You could walk out your front door seeing him engage made a big impact in how East Oakland was beginning to trust the police again. Mayor Tao made her decision following a highly critical report done as part of the city's federal monitoring. It cites inadequate discipline of a police sergeant involved in a hit-and-run accident. The same sergeant later fired his gun in a police elevator. After an internal affairs review signed off by the chief, the sergeant was given additional training and counseling. 
The report says that lacks punishment, quote, exposed systemic deficiencies in the department's ability to investigate misconduct of its members. We take these findings seriously. Mayor Tao, in announcing her decision, said immediate corrective actions were necessary to comply with federal oversight. Our goal here is not to be punitive. This is not a disciplinary action to Chief Laron Armstrong. This is an opportunity to more fully review the findings of the reports and let our oversight bodies act. Chief Armstrong, for his part, insists he did nothing wrong. He says he acted appropriately based on the information he had. We're talking about a minor vehicle collision. We're not talking about a scandal. Armstrong and his supporters say allegations he mishandled the two internal investigations amount to a power grab by the federal monitor to try to keep his well-paid contract just as Oakland was close to getting out from under federal watch. This, to me, clearly is a last-ditch effort to destroy the credibility of me, destroy the credibility of this department, and to make the community believe that, again, OPD is involved in some shady business, and that's not what this is. Oakland has cycled through a stunning number of police leaders, 11 in the last 14 years. And sidelining the chief, an Oakland native who came up through the ranks, has united some communities of color who are calling for his immediate reinstatement. Chinatown community leader Carl Chan. When it's most needed, uh, he was there for us. He understands the needs of the people because he's one of our own. And Pastor Marty Peters with Victory Baptist Church says the black church and most Oaklanders won't soon forget what amounts to Mayor Tao's first big move after taking office. I think this was a wrong move, wrong time. And when she's going to need the church community and when she's going to need the community, they're going to remember this harsh treatment that we have received as citizens of Oakland. Now, Oakland's Civilian Police Commission will soon weigh in on how they think the chief's case should be resolved. But they're just one voice. The mayor and the federal monitor also have the power to oversee and discipline the chief. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Oakland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration faced heated questions on Capitol Hill today over recent safety lapses, including near misses on runways and the failure of a computer system that grounded flights nationwide. NPR's David Shaper reports. Alarm bells are ringing in Congress over a couple of near collisions between airplanes in recent weeks that put hundreds of lives at risk. At New York's JFK Airport, an American Airlines passenger jet mistakenly crossed over an active runway into the path of a Delta plane that was beginning to take off. Air traffic control called for the Delta pilot to abort, and he did so safely. In Austin, Texas, one recent foggy morning, a FedEx cargo plane coming into land came within 100 feet of crashing into a Southwest passenger jet that was taking off. They'd both been cleared by an air traffic controller to use the same runway. At a Senate Commerce Committee hearing today, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz played a video dramatization of that near collision with actual recordings of pilot communications with air traffic control. Southwest, confirm on the road. 
The Southwest pilot confirms it is beginning to take off when the FedEx pilot sees it and calls for it to stop. Southwest aboard. But it cannot. FedEx is on the go. The FedEx pilot pulls up and averts disaster. Crews then ask acting FAA Administrator Billy Nolan how such a close call could happen. Nolan says it's still not clear what went wrong as investigations are still underway. It is not what we would expect to have happen, but when we think about the controls, how we train both our controllers and our pilots, the system works as it's designed to avert what you say could have been a horrific outcome. The other issue flummoxing senators is the January 11th failure of the NOTAM system, which notifies pilots of potential hazards. That computer breakdown led the FAA to ground all departures nationwide for nearly two hours that morning, forcing airlines to cancel 1,300 flights and delay 11,000 more. Washington Democrat Maria Cantwell, the committee's chair, wondered how both the system and its backup could go down. To be sure, the FAA must have redundancies and not a single point where a failure can happen in a key system like we just saw. Acting Administrator Nolan says the agency has since implemented fixes and changed its procedures to prevent a repeat of such an outage. But Senator Ted Cruz pressed him on that. Will the fixes remove the risk of a similar single point of failure from knocking the system out? Is there redundancy being built into it? Or can a single screw-up ground air traffic nationwide? Nolan responded that there are redundancies and safeguards now in place, but... Could I sit here today and tell you there will never be another issue on the NOTAM system? No, sir, I cannot. What I can say is that we are making every effort to modernize and look at our procedures. Nolan noted that over the last decade plus, air travel in the U.S. has never been safer. But we do not take that for granted. Recent events remind us that we cannot and must not become complacent and must continually invest in our aviation system. To that end, Nolan is creating a safety review team of outside experts to examine the FAA systems, structure, culture, processes, and integration of safety efforts, while the agency continues its massive effort to overhaul and upgrade outdated technology. David Shaper, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across the state, and clean drinking water may get more expensive. Our week-long reporting project continues this evening and tomorrow morning at 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Tip-off time at the Garden tonight for the Celtics and Detroit Pistons is 7.30. The Bruins are off tonight. Winds are still blowing out there. We should have clear skies tonight, but a windy night. Temperatures dipping only to 48 degrees. Then for tomorrow, clouds on the increase through the day as temperatures rise as well. Should top out at 62. May break or at least set a record for tomorrow. Rain is on the way for Friday. Breezy, still mild, up around 60 degrees. As of now, the weekend's looking bright with highs in the 40s. We live in a world of viruses. Every time we take a breath in, we breathe in 
probably thousands of different viral strains. Researchers spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to identify the ones we really need to worry about. Have they been looking in the wrong place? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Several states across the country have new laws on the books this year to reduce the greenhouse gas pollution that is warming the planet. Washington state is among them. New laws change how big businesses use energy and how people fuel up their cars and trucks. John Ryan from member station KUOW in Seattle begins this two-part story. A new cap on carbon emissions from big polluters is the centerpiece of Washington Governor Jay Inslee's push to tackle pollution that causes climate change. Inslee tooted his horn at a press conference in January. This is something we legitimately can crow about. We do have the best suite of policies to build clean energy in our state, in the United States. The carbon cap has been in the works for about a decade. During that time, greenhouse gas emissions have continued to increase. That's despite Inslee's promises and a state law that required emissions to shrink below their 1990 levels by the year 2020. Washington missed that deadline, and now the state mandate is to get to net zero pollution over the next 30 years. And now we can show real results, not just promises of action. Now, big polluters face a cap on their emissions. To keep polluting, businesses can buy a limited number of allowances, basically pollution permits. Those permits will go on auction starting this month. Proceeds will go to reduce pollution and help hard-hit communities prepare for everything from heat waves to floods. The carbon cap is definitely a major system change for the economy in Washington. Jessica Spiegel represents oil companies like Chevron and Phillips 66 with the Western States Petroleum Association. Oil refineries won't have to make immediate pollution reductions like other sectors due to fears they might take their business elsewhere. And they get their pollution permits worth millions of dollars for free. Even so, Spiegel says they'll be hard-pressed to cut pollution as fast as the state wants them to. How do we get there so fast? We need to be building new things right now. The BP refinery north of Bellingham is the second biggest source of carbon pollution in the state. Refinery manager Eric Zimfer says it's making more biodiesel and taking other steps to cut emissions faster than the state mandate. We're going to be a net zero company across our operations. This is something the world needs to move to. A dozen eastern states have a cap on carbon emissions from power plants, but so far only the west coast states of California, Oregon, and Washington have started to cap pollution from industry more broadly. For NPR News, I'm John Ryan in Seattle. This new carbon cap isn't Washington's only effort to cut emissions. This year, the state became the latest to adopt a low-carbon fuel standard. Bellamy Palethorpe with member station KNKX reports it's a system of fees on transportation fuel producers and credits for low-carbon alternatives. Tom Yamada drags a big hose from his bright orange tanker truck to a grease trap out back of a popular Hawaiian taco restaurant in Seattle. And it's like a big straw, so we're going to vacuum up this oil. He works for Mahoney Environmental, which recycles used cooking oil. Yamada says it's a dirty job, but he takes pride in helping to make cleaner fuels. There that goes. That was... uh... That's about 150 gallons, so it took maybe two minutes. Yamada collects cooking oil from all around western Washington. That oil then gets purified and pre-treated in Seattle before it goes overseas, where it's processed into renewable diesel. The fuel isn't available in Washington yet. 
only abroad and in California and Oregon. They're actually able to get a lot higher price for renewable diesel in states that have a clean fuel standard. That's Leah Misick with Climate Solutions, a nonprofit that fought hard to get this fuel policy for Washington. The fees support low-carbon transportation alternatives like biofuels, but also electrification. Misick says transit agencies that provide vehicle chargers, for example, can get paid for every kilowatt hour used. That can then be used by the transit agency to purchase more electric buses and convert their diesel fleet or install charging for more electric buses at their depots. In California, at times, those fees have largely offset the cost of the electricity used for some transit agencies, says Colin Murphy. He's with the Carbon Fuel Policy Research Group at UC Davis. He thinks Washington's new policy will add up to 10 cents a gallon to fuel prices over the next five years. But he says the benefits far outweigh the costs. It's do we want to pay for lower carbon fuels and energy or do we want to keep rebuilding you know, rural communities when they burn down due to wildfires and rebuilding coastal communities when they flood due to sea level rise. With Washington's policy now in effect, it joins the entire West Coast and British Columbia, Canada, with a fuel standard. Other states, including New York, New Mexico, and Minnesota, have also tried to get one, but so far have hit roadblocks. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy Palethorpe in Seattle. It's a big day in Kansas City where scores of fans turned out to celebrate their team's win in the Super Bowl. For the second time in four seasons, there is a red and gold reflection on the Lombardi Trophy. A big red reflection. Your champions, Super Bowl 57, the Kansas City Chiefs. Frank Morris of member station KCUR was in the thick of the victory parade. The middle of downtown Kansas City was jammed today, and just about everyone was wearing red. Mindy Jacoby is here dressed for bed. Are those pajamas? Yes, and they're warm and they're fuzzy and they're amazing. So what what brings you out here in your pajamas? The Chiefs! (laughs) Nearby, Nicole Moore stands out in sparkly earmuffs, lots of red, and Chiefs spelled out in big, shiny gold letters on her shirt. Yeah, yeah, I want it to bling. I want to be slain. I want it to reflect, you know. Like everybody here, Moore has a favorite player. Hers is tight end Travis Kelsey. I love Kelsey all day. Kelsey, I love Mahomes, but I'm a Kelsey fan. Mahomes, of course, is Kansas City Chiefs quarterback and NFL most valuable player, Patrick Mahomes. And he's, you know, pretty popular around here. I love Patrick Mahomes. He, he like, an inspiration to me. Yeah, I love it. I just love him. Eight-year-old Damani White is here with a football, hoping for an autograph. Paula Villavicencio also idolizes Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, I feel like, meets everything for his generosity to, like, on the field. He's really uplifting to the team, and yet, like, that brings so much inspiration to, um, like, everyone else who sees that. Mahomes isn't just a fantastic athlete. He plays through pain and ekes out the most amazing plays and white-knuckle wins. He's also... By all accounts, a very decent guy, one who's bought a stake in all three of Kansas City's other professional sports teams. And, and just like that, the hero of Kansas City walks by. That's my home, baby! Goggles on, looking very loose and groovy. Oh my gosh, I saw my homes. Yeah, I saw my homes. I wanted to touch my homes, is what I wanted to do. Seth Nevera, wearing a Chiefs jersey with Mahomes number 15 on it and a hefty bunch of red and gold Mardi Gras beads 
says Mahomes is a game changer. What do you think he means for the city? Hope. Hope and just the fact that we actually matter. Like Kansas City's on the map. I mean, we're like the center of the NFL world right now. So, like, yeah, he just brought he brought us hope. He brought us meaning, brought us purpose. And lots of people think Patrick Mahomes is going to bring Kansas City a few more Super Bowl victories. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Our mild day has led to a mild night tonight, only falling to just below 50 tonight with some good wind gusts around. Tomorrow should begin with some sunshine before clouds waft in through the day. Another unseasonably warm day could reach 62 tomorrow. Maybe some showers late in the afternoon. Friday should be a rainy day, breezy and mild once again, right about 60. Could have some sunshine this weekend with temperatures in the 40s. Coming to WBR City Space, February 21st, former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter talks about his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thousands of Russians opposed to their country's war in Ukraine have taken up residence in Armenia, a former Soviet republic which lets them enter without a passport. They're in no hurry to return to Russia. I'll go home when either they get rid of all these repressive laws or the authorities are so weak they can't enforce them. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up, also a special unit of the Thompson Penitentiary in Illinois, is shutting down because of deadly conditions that were revealed in reporting from NPR and the Marshall Project. The young man who killed 10 people at a Buffalo supermarket last year will spend the rest of his life in prison. And Massachusetts residents who rely on well water may be ingesting so-called forever chemicals known as PFAS that seep into the wells. You've lived here for 37 years and you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be visiting Turkey this weekend to see U.S. earthquake aid efforts on the ground. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports his trip begins in Germany for an international policy conference. Russia's war in Ukraine and the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria will top the agenda as Secretary Blinken meets with many of his European counterparts at the Munich Security Conference. From there, he will fly to Incirlik Air Base in Turkey, says spokesman Ned Price. He'll have an opportunity while there to witness uh, some of what the U.S. government is doing. Uh, and I think he'll also be in a position to speak to what more uh, the United States will be prepared to do for our Turkish allies and for the people of Syria uh, in the days to come. The trip was planned before the earthquake and will also include a stop in Greece. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The man convicted of carrying out a racist massacre at a Buffalo, New York supermarket last year was sentenced to life in prison without chance of parole today. 19-year-old Peyton Gendron offered an apology to the victim's families, but it was not well received in the courtroom. Gendron pleaded guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder and a single count of domestic terrorism motivated by hate for the shooting rampage that left 10 people dead and three others wounded. Gendron, an avowed white supremacist, opened fire at a Topps Market in East Buffalo because they had a large black clientele. Raquel Welsh has died of a brief illness at her home in Los Angeles. The movie star was 82 years old. NPR's Chloe Veltman says Welsh's portrayal of powerful female characters went beyond the traditional sex symbol. Raquel Welch's appearance in the 1966 sci-fi adventure Fantastic Voyage in a skin-tight white bodysuit got moviegoers' attention. Open it! Open it before they get here! I can't tell the hatches fluttered. But it was one million years BC, made that same year, that sealed the actress's reputation as an international sex symbol. See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumak of the Rock People. Over a career spanning more than 50 years, Welch's memorable performances in films like The Three Musketeers, for which she won a Golden Globe, proved she was much more than a stereotypical blonde bombshell. Welch leaves behind a daughter and son. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. The Justice Department has told attorneys representing Florida Congressman Matt Gates they will not be bringing any charges against him related to alleged sex trafficking and obstruction of justice. Gates' lawyers issuing a statement today saying the department has wrapped up its investigation. The department was investigating Gates over whether he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl, allegedly paying for her to travel with him in violation of federal sex trafficking laws. Gates has consistently denied the allegations that Department of Justice has not publicly commented. Stocks gained ground today. The Dow was up 38 points. The Nasdaq rose 110 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, Boston City Council voted 7-5 to five to restore an elected school committee in the city. Right now, Boston is the only municipality in the state where the mayor appoints school committee members. The proposed change needs Mayor Michelle Wu's signature to become reality. And as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that's not guaranteed. City councilors who support the change note that in 2021, 79% of Boston voters favored an elected school committee. At this point, though, it's Wu's support that matters, and she has said that now is not the time to make the change. City councilor Julia Mejia says Boston's leaders can't ignore a clear message from the electorate. At the end of the day, we were all elected, including the mayor, to represent the people. Those who put us in office expect us to do the work. This is not a moment to cop out. This is a moment to rise up. 
The petition, if passed, would phase in elected members over four years. It would also add two voting student members. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Water bills are about to go up in many parts of Massachusetts. Communities that are partially served by the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority will see an average increase of about 10 percent on that part of their bill. Communities fully served by the MWRA will have an average increase of about 2.2 percent. That will vary widely from one community to the next, with Boston customers seeing an increase of about half that amount. The city of Cambridge is in the early stages of implementing a police body cam program. It's beginning to draft uh, body cam policies and speak with vendors. Calls to implement the cameras came in the wake of the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Arif Saeed Faisal in early January. The Cambridge Police Department conducted an administrative review of the incident and found no officer misconduct during the encounter. The officer involved in the shooting remains on paid leave. The department is conducting a review of its policies and procedures. A third person involved in a multi-million dollar romance scam in Rhode Island and other states has been found guilty and now awaits sentencing. 28-year-old Sadie Mills of Texas was convicted today in federal court in Providence. Prosecutors say the scammers built unsuspecting seniors out of more than $3.2 million. Mills pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy to commit money laundering. She admitted to receiving payments that she knew were fraudulently obtained from women through Internet and app-based romance scams. Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival has released its 2023 schedule. The festival in Beckett, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires kicks off June 28th and runs through August 27th. Tickets for the general public go on sale in April. In the forecast, we've got clear skies ahead tonight. Should be kind of windy, about 48 for a low. Then tomorrow, sunshine early, clouds later on. Temperatures in the low 60s should be about 60 degrees on Friday, with showers pushed around by a strong wind. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Mount thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today, federal officials are taking steps to close one of the most dangerous prison units in the country. The special management unit of the Thompson Penitentiary in northwestern Illinois will shut down and hundreds of inmates will move somewhere else within the federal prison system. This change came about because of murders and suicides among inmates at Thompson, violence that was exposed by the reporting of NPR and its partner, The Marshall Project. We'll warn you that this report includes some descriptions of that violence. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro is here to talk with us about this development. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ari. The federal officials who are shutting down this prison unit say they are doing so largely because of violent conditions, which you documented in your reporting. Tell us what you found. That's right. This is reporting I did with Christy Thompson of the Marshall Project. And first, we found a string of violent deaths in just two years, five homicides, prisoners killing other prisoners, and two suicides. And there was another violent death. Uh, We're not sure what happened just two weeks ago. The question is why? What set this prison apart? Why was it so much more violent? What did your reporting show? Right. Well, it started with a little-known practice, something called double-selling, which is the practice of putting two men into one tiny, solitary confinement cell. It's about the size of a parking space, and they're locked down for 23, 24 hours a day. And we reported on men also placed in restraints, often painful four-point restraints for 
hours or days, often in violation of federal prison policies. This happened in a room that the prisoners told us they called the torture chamber, and these tight restraints would leave scars that the men told us they called their Thompson tattoos. A lot of your reporting relied on prisoners or their family members who courageously spoke up about these conditions, sometimes even though they feared that the, the prison system might retaliate against them. Can you introduce us to someone? Yes. Uh, one prisoner, Demetrius Hill, he was an eyewitness to a killing, and he got a message to us the day after it happened. A family told their stories of how corrections officers would often put men together as cellmates or in recreation yards, men who they knew were going to fight. Sue Phillips says guards put her son, Matthew, alone in a recreation cage with two members of a white supremacist gang who then killed him. Uh, Matthew was Jewish. He had a large Star of David tattooed on his chest. And the indictment of these men who were charged with killing him says they had their own tattoos for a prison gang called the Valhalla-bound skinheads. Here's Sue Phillips. She's talking about what the indictment says was found in their cells. They had white supremacy markings on their shoes. They also had cells that contained Nazi memorabilia, mugs with SWAT stickers on them, articles and literature promoting white supremacy, drawings of Hitler. These men brutally kicked and stomped her son. And Sue Phillips says corrections officers should have known what would happen when they put her son alone in that recreation cage with him. I understand the Bureau of Prisons won't say where these 500 or so inmates from Thompson will go, but based on your reporting, it does not seem safe to assume that this is necessarily going to solve the problem. Right. Christy Thompson and I have been writing for seven years now about problems at these special management units. They're supposed to be places that take the most violent, uh, dangerous federal prisoners, gang leaders, ones who commit prison violence. Although, by the way, we talked to men who didn't seem to fit any of those descriptions. Our first reporting found similar violence at the previous version of the special management unit at the federal prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And shortly after our reporting, that unit was moved to Thompson. And Thompson became another violence factory, which is why the Federal Bureau of Prisons now is shutting it down after its own investigation, which found the problems at Thompson are so deep and persistent that they figured the place can't be fixed. It's not clear, though, what will replace it or, as you said, where these men are going. But we're going to keep watching. That's NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have left their country in opposition to the war in Ukraine. And with the conflict showing no end in sight, many are settling down in other countries for the long haul. NPR's Charles Maines recently traveled to the southern Caucasus nation of Armenia to meet with some exiled Russians. In the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ivan Moshkin remembers arriving to his work at a Moscow bank and the shock that came next. All my male colleagues had already gone. The older people in the office said, are you an idiot? What are you still doing here? You're of military draft age. Get out now, before mobilization begins. With Moshkin short on money, the office pooled their cash to buy him a ticket out. That same evening, he was on his way to the airport and a new life in Armenia. With little money, and no work. I fell into a deep, deep depression. For Russians who oppose the war, it's been a tough road. 
Repressive laws have made life dangerous at home, and growing numbers of countries are closing their doors to Russian immigration. Yet Armenia, once a Soviet republic, offers something of a refuge. Russians can travel here without a passport. Even Russian, the language, is widely spoken by locals. Moshkin, for one, says here he's breathing easier. He eventually found a job waiting tables in the capital Yerevan, and with the war grinding on, he's now applying for his residency permit. And he's not the only one. At the Russian Svobodnishkola, or free school, in downtown Yerevan, a day of classes is winding down. Launched as a pop-up education program to accommodate a few dozen families who fled here last spring, the free school is another example of the increasingly entrenched Russian presence in Armenia. Free school's founder, Anna Chegovayeva, says the whole thing started on a dare. Her friends knew she was a good organizer. What she didn't expect was to be running a full-fledged school, now with more than 180 students. The school even offers Armenian language night classes for Russian parents. Of course, I'd love for everything to suddenly change in Russia, and together we'd all happily go home. Then there wouldn't be a need for the school. But we decided our school will exist as long as we are in this position. In fact, it seems everywhere you look in Armenia, Russians are not only making do, but settling down, opening businesses and getting involved in the community. Government figures show Armenia's GDP jumped 14 percent after the Russian influx. I try to become useful to the Armenian society, to become integrated. Ivan Devodakovsky left Moscow, fearing he could be arrested for his past participation in Russia's pro-democracy movement. He says he's now engaged in causes important to Armenia's future. I don't know if I can become an Armenian in a narrow sense, but I am a part of the Russian immigrant circle, and we are doing our best to become a good long-term guest, a good uh, roommate. And Russians are integrating in other ways. Dana Vergalush is one of hundreds of Russian IT professionals who relocated to Yerevan, in her case from southern Russia's Rostov-on-Don. Vergalush says she arrived with her daughter, intent on finding people who share her progressive politics and passion for the environment. She's since launched a series of volunteer trash cleanups, much to her surprise, with buy-in and support from the Armenian authorities. In Russia, my activities were never welcomed or approved of by the government. Not once did anyone reach out to say, that's great what you are doing, or even just say thank you. Yet gaining acceptance in Armenia comes with accepting that a return to Russia is unlikely. Last spring, Russian President Vladimir Putin demonized Russians who fled the country in the past year as scum and traitors. Even now, Russia's parliament, the Duma, is debating measures that could strip property, perhaps even citizenship, from those expat Russians seen as openly disloyal. After a year of war, it will take fundamental changes inside Russia, even the end of the Putin era, to lure these political emigres back, says Darina Metskaya, a native of St. Petersburg. I'll go home when either they get rid of all these repressive laws or the authorities are so weak they can't enforce them. I see myself going back when I'm sure I can cross the border and I'm certain no one will arrest me. Mitskaya runs the local chapter of Kovcheg, or The Ark, 
a support group that provides assistance to Russians settling into life abroad and often leaving trouble behind. On the night I visited, the ARC was hosting a letter-writing campaign to Russian political prisoners currently in jail over their opposition to the war. Ivan Lubimov knew the routine better than most. Lubimov says letters from people he'd never met comforted him when he was in jail for participating in opposition rallies in his native city of Ekaterinburg. In fact, Lubimov says he left for Armenia only after authorities launched a criminal probe into his own anti-war activities, over which he has no regrets. The Russian government's policies won't change. The police won't behave any differently. The courts won't get any better. But it's still important and necessary to protest this war, to show that not all Russians support this aggressive annexation of Ukraine's territory. As to what's next, Lubimov says he'll stay in Armenia, at least for now. And with that, he started scribbling out a letter, a message intended for sender and recipient alike. It read, Sooner or later, we might both find ourselves in a new free country, breathing the free air. Until then, hold on. Charles Maines, NPR News, Yerevan, Armenia. That's just one of many stories we're reporting about the effects of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. You can find more stories and reflections by checking your local member station for NPR's special report, Russia's War in Ukraine, One Year On. To find your member station, go to npr.org stations. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, the toxic chemical leaching into the water wells of Massachusetts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Minor gains for the Dow today. It rose about a tenth of a percent, 39 points, to close at 34,128. S&P picked up nearly three-tenths of a percent to close at 4148. The Nasdaq gained nearly one percent to finish the day at 12,071. A group of nearly two dozen postal workers brought some music to this morning's commute. The group donned their uniforms and danced to the 1961 hit Please, Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes in a choreographed flash mob at South Station. The workers were also advertising more than 700 USPS open jobs in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Marketplace has business news at 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Coming to WBR City Space tomorrow, String Quartet Acoustic Nomads perform selections from their new album with influences from Appalachia to South America. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Clear and mild tonight, about 48 at the lowest. Tomorrow we should wake up to sunshine before rain clouds move in. More funky February weather with high temperatures in the low 60s. Should be about 60 on Friday with showers backed by a strong wind. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismom.com. 
D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The man who pleaded guilty to killing 10 people in a Buffalo, New York supermarket last May has been sentenced to life without parole. The killer, who's white and a self-described ethno-nationalist, targeted black shoppers in the attack. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. The day began with emotional testimonies from the loved ones of victims. Barbara Mapps spoke about her sister, Catherine Massey, a community activist. She was 72. She was at Topps Friendly Market getting groceries when Peyton Gendron walked in and opened fire, killing her and nine others. You don't come to our city and decide you don't like black people. Man, you don't know a damn thing about black people. Barbara Mapp's testimony was interrupted when one victim's family member rushed furiously at Gendron. Guards hustled the killer out of the courtroom until it was calm enough for Mapps to continue. We love our kids. We never go in no neighborhood to take people out. The killer expressed remorse in court today and acknowledged he cannot take back what he did. But throughout the testimonies, the trauma his racist attack caused on the community was made clear. You came into the biggest part, the strongest part of the black community, and you ripped us apart. Brian Talley spoke on behalf of victim Geraldine Talley, his sister-in-law. How can you possibly stand up here and say that you're sorry? That you're sorry? You're playing this whole thing. You planned it. You put it on a video like it was a video game and watched it. The shooter is 19 years old, and he lived over three hours away from the community. Prosecutors have said during the months in which he planned the attack, he repeatedly drove to Maston Park on Buffalo's east side, a predominantly black neighborhood. He scouted the location and even counted the number of black people present. As she wiped tears off her face, Erie County Court Judge Susan Egan spoke directly to the young man. There is no place for you or your ignorant, hateful, and evil ideologies in a civilized society. There can be no mercy for you, no understanding, no second chances. Egan ended the day with an emotional reflection on the shooting's place in the larger history of racism in America. She sentenced the shooter to life without parole. You will never see the light of day as a free man ever again. Life without parole is the highest possible sentence in New York State, which does not have the death penalty. But the shooter has also been indicted on 27 federal charges, including hate and domestic terrorism. The U.S. Attorney General will decide later this week whether to seek the death penalty. Defense attorneys have said the killer would be willing to plead guilty if the federal government agrees not to seek capital punishment. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than a half million people in Massachusetts get their drinking water from private wells. But there are no state or federal rules about these wells and the toxic chemicals known as PFAS that can seep into them. 
Those chemicals have been linked to a growing list of health concerns. As WBR's Barbara Moran reports, this lack of oversight leaves private well owners vulnerable to these so-called forever chemicals. Bill Watcher lives in Stowe, a small town about 30 miles outside Boston. Hello, Bill. Hi, Hi Barbara. There's a farm across the street from his house and woods in the backyard. For a town this size, it has a lot of conservation land and still a lot of open spaces. So it's, it has that bucolic feel to it. The town also has a couple known sources of PFAS pollution, like an old fire station and a former mill. PFAS chemicals have been used in consumer products, industry, and firefighting foam for decades. And contamination is widespread. So Watcher decided to have his well tested for PFAS, just to be safe. When the result came back, he was shocked. It was 52 parts per trillion, more than twice the state limit for a public water system. He says it was scary. I mean, you've lived here for 37 years, and you've brought up two children here, and so you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. Watcher wasn't sure where to turn. There are no state or town rules for testing or filtering water from individual private wells. So he searched the internet. A full house filtration system can cost thousands of dollars. Watcher found a smaller filter to install under his kitchen sink. It cost close to $600 and he paid for it himself. It is a very confusing system and it really leads to a lot of regional inequities. Amy Shea is the president and CEO of the Health Foundation of Central Massachusetts. And she says Watcher's situation is not surprising. In more rural parts of the state, there is not public water infrastructure, very few protections, lots of risk for contamination as a result of poorly maintained systems. In Stowe, Every single home relies on private well water. That makes it impossible to know the full extent of PFAS contamination in the town. So the red dots, the dots uh, signify public water supplies. In her office in Town Hall, Stowe Town Administrator Denise Demkoski has spread maps across a long table. So this first map, this is an overview of Stowe in general. She points to PFAS hotspots near the former firefighting academy, a Bose facility, and an old mill. So green means no PFAS, yellow is the next level. Um, then it goes to pink and then red and now a purple level, um, which I was told they created just for Stowe because we had levels over 90 parts per trillion. So they had to create a new color for us. But most of the map isn't colored in at all. Not because there's no PFAS, but because people haven't reported their test results or haven't tested at all. Testing a well for PFAS can cost hundreds of dollars, more than some can afford or want to pay. And what if they do test and what happens? And then, you know, some people can't afford a $5,000 treatment system and then the filter's on top of that. There's another reason besides cost that private well owners are reluctant to test for PFAS. They're concerned about lowering the value of their home. And if their property turns out to be a PFAS source, they could be liable for damages to their neighbors' homes. You know, I think there's that hesitancy, and there are people who are concerned about that. Jennifer Peterson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association, an industry group. She's also a concerned homeowner with a private well. And I have not yet tested my well because I'm really not quite certain about the liability that might be incurred by doing so. 
Some towns are forcing the issue. The Harvard Board of Health requires residents to test for PFAS before selling their house, and Stowe's Board of Health is considering the same. Clean water advocate Amy Shea says the state should step in and regulate private wells like private septic systems. I have always found it so interesting that the state regulates the wastewater that leaves somebody's home, and yet it does not regulate the water that is entering a home and being consumed. Bills pending in the state legislature do include provisions for private well owners, like giving them access to money from a proposed PFAS trust fund, or allowing the state to regulate private wells. The legislation will likely face pushback from homeowners who don't want the government meddling in their private property. But Stowe homeowner Bill Watcher says private well owners shouldn't be nervous about testing for PFAS. When it comes to your drinking water, he says, it's better to know what's there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Our reporting on PFAS continues tomorrow morning with scientists learning more about how these forever chemicals affect our bodies. For tips on how to reduce your exposure to PFAS, visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum, with Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose.